welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear stories of someone brave enough to bear it all. Let's get naked. Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Today I have Victoria Price and the puppy on with us today. Victoria, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. And in our pregame, um, we talked about how your book was released yesterday, which is the middle of April 2020. Yes. Is it your first book? No, it's not. I didn't ask you that. See, yay, but still congratulations. So take just yes, jump in. The birthday, yes. Okay, so jump in and tell us about the books and the website. It's victoriaprice.com, so very easy. It will be in the show notes, but jump in and tell me. Yeah, so the book is called Living Love, 12 Heart-Centered Practices to Transform Your Life. And it's basically these very simple practices that get us out of our heads, out of the problem-solving mentality, and back into our hearts. There's something anyone can do. And the reason I wrote it is because doing these practices totally transformed my life. And then I began sharing them with others. It transformed other people's lives. And I thought, this shit works. Yeah. Okay, you have several books. So I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't cyberstalk you as thoroughly as I like to do. So you have five books? I have quite a few books. Yeah, yeah. I uh, three books uh, that I wrote myself and then a number of other books that I uh, co-wrote and then I wrote, I've written for television. So, but really, you know, writing yeah. for me is something that just, I've always written myself whole. It's always how I've made sense of the world and explained things and kind of processed. I'm a verbal processor and it, it's either out the mouth or out the hand. And often really for me, writing is also the way that, you know, what I need to learn comes out. So I blog every single morning, literally every morning. Um, uh, I was doing it sort of more you know, once a week and then starting this year, for some reason, I thought I'm going to blog every day. Who knew that this year would turn into this year? So yeah, um, it's been an amazing time because I sit down in the morning, like get up in the morning. I don't know what's going to come through. And, you know, they're all about heart-centered practices and out it comes. I write a blog called Daily Practice of Joy. I love this. Um, I, I speak also, and my number one platform is compounding joy. It's using the theory of compound interest to increase your gratitude and joy. And I have 13 things. So I'm dying to talk to you about this. This is so exciting. I, and I also love, you know, I don't think people embrace enough how they process and you just expressed how you process you, you, I talk to process also. So you verbally process and you're able to do that through writing. Yeah, through writing and, and, you know, talking the ears of my closest friends off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that part, let's not minimize that part, but that's great that you were able to channel it in writing because sometimes that's a little, it's a little bit, that's a skill, I think. It's something I've always done. And I have to say the great thing about it is when, when the less you think of yourself as a, a, a personal author, as a writer, but more like whatever has to come through is going to come through. Then when you're done, you walk away and it's like something's done, like it's out. And now what else has to come through? So it's, uh, I find writing is this incredible gift kind of for everybody involved. If you can get yourself out of the way, the stuff where I'm writing and I'm not out of the way. I haven't, you know, kind of cleaned the window. And so yeah. there's a lot uh, that it has to come through. That's, that's a lot more challenging. Yeah. And usually I, it's the stuff that I've had a long story about since childhood. Like I want to be this kind of writer or that kind of writer. Oh, the story we create in our minds. Isn't it great? Yeah. So self-sabotaging. <laughs> totally. I love it. Now tell me about your website. Uh, the website, I mean, we talked about you as an author. There's so much more on your website. Yeah. Well, you know, I came from parents who were Renaissance people and they okay. really just taught me, you know, you don't need to choose one thing to do. You just need to listen to what you love and show up to it. Um, what I didn't realize is that if you choose not to pursue a very public life, you know, like my parents had, my dad was always a Renaissance man and my parents were this Hollywood power couple that were so inventive and people just look at me as a workaholic multitasker. So I, who can't make up her mind and I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay. But you love a lot of things, which is I do. Great. I love a lot of things. I never really got the whole idea. And I don't think people are built this way that we should pick one thing at some age, like 16 and figure out how to oh do that until we retire. And then, you know, maybe have a hobby so you can do your job and golf. And then, yeah. then when you're 65, maybe figure out what the rest of the shit you like is. That's ridiculous. Uh, it is the most terrible plan 
ever. And I've told all my kids when they hit that, when their high school counselor starts talking to them about, you need to figure out what you want to do. You know, you're, I'm like, don't. The, I think that kids should just take the classes that interest them. And then after a couple of years of taking classes that interest them, they can look at what are the themes that they really, really enjoyed. And that may be how you pick what you want to do as a career. I just think it's done so backwards. Oh, totally. Totally backwards. I'm so with you on that. And it doesn't mean that you need to be all over the place, (laughs) but you speak, you do other appearances, you have a blog, uh, workshops, coaching. I mean, there's a lot you do. And so can we go into a couple of these things? Sure. So one of the ones that I think I'm most interested in is something I called holistic branding because I was a designer for many, many years. And, and design has been this kind of interesting story in my life. My mother was a designer, like always way ahead of her time, which as a child is really irritating because, you know, you're a kid who wants to fit in and your mother's dressing you like so avant-garde and four years, five years ahead of the time. It's like, I just want to look like Jennifer Berger. Can I look like Jennifer Berger? No, no. You have to wear these clothes I've had made for you that I've designed to be so avant-garde. My entire, every picture of me in my childhood, I look like I'm wearing the drapes. You know, it's like that super huge, like paisley prints in these long, cool thing, you know, like caftan, like, you know, I'm eight. So um, anyway, uh, you know, my mother was a designer. She taught me all about design. I didn't want to do anything my mother wanted me to do. And then at a time where my life had completely fallen apart, that skill saved my bacon. And Mm. it has been something I've done over and over again. I was, um, you know, in in advertising, print advertising in my early 20s. Um, I had uh, one of the, really a very successful design business, design build business. Um, And so those skills have always been there and I, and I'm a sort of a, an avid photographer because I love it. So I just love visuals and I'm an art historian by trade and had an art gallery for many years. So I love the visual thing. And I've learned a lot about social media because my dad, uh, my dad was Vincent Price, the actor. And so I wanted to give him a presence online and I created this Facebook page and kind of just started from scratch and he has 245,000 followers and you know it's been really fun kind of growing that whole community and that taught me a lot about social media and because I love my dad it was a fun practice but when it came to doing it for myself because I'm a hermit I'm a hider I don't like being you know I'm I was given all the skills to be a front of house person, but I was given the heart of a back of house person, you know? And so I'm, I'm a hermit and a hider. And, uh, and so what happens is that I find that for myself, it's a lot easier to kind of do things visually without being in the front. And for my dad, let him be front and center. But I learned a lot about social media and how to do it, build websites and, do all sorts of branding stuff and added that to working for almost every major movie studio, how to do that with a holistic sense. Because I think there's this way that many people feel kind of abused by social media. Like they have to whore themselves to, and be somebody they really aren't in order to get themselves out there. So I work with them. It's sort of like spiritual direction and, and business coaching to really be able to articulate what, who they are. And then we co-create their website and their social media branding and everything they put out there. And it's so much fun, you know, it's just so much fun and I love it. And that's something, you know, you said what you told your kids to do, you know, you just described sort of what I've done. Like, well, I like this about this job and I like that about that job and I'm good at this, but I like this part of it, but not that part of it. Uh It's so much fun using all those skills to help other people shine. And do what they love. And I think when people, I honestly feel this, if people are doing what they love, there's an energetic out there. Mm -hmm. And it's so important because that means that we're believing that it's possible to have a world where we are supplied when we do what we love, as opposed to thinking we're going to grow up, do something we hate, and maybe someday we'll Mm -hmm. make enough money to retire and then do something we love. Like, no wonder we're fucked. It's the worst model ever. I hate the model. Yes, it's so backwards. I love that. But I also want to touch on something else you said, because it's a personal belief of mine. So it's probably why I picked it out. 
I didn't get my college degree. And there was a time about 15 years ago that was like, I was felt bad about that. You know, you're looking in corporate America and you don't have this piece of paper and they wanted it in any, you just have to have a bachelor's in anything. Right. Exactly. It's not even in this job. You just have to have it. Yep. You'd be fine. It's so terrible. And I, I looked at my life, not in a resume of where I'd work, but in what, what every situation taught me, the skill set that I gained in my situations. And I was like, God, I want to hire me. My resume looks awesome because it's how you, so you're looking at people that way and what they do. Well, you know, it's really interesting because when I said, you know, I took from this, I taught for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And the reason I taught is, you know, I'm kind of a polymath. I have one of those heads that is interested in a lot of things. So Mm -hmm. teaching was a great way of keeping that brain part of me interested. But really why I taught is because I had a teacher in seventh, eighth and ninth grade who, when my parents were going through a divorce and my life was really changing, I changed schools and locations and sort of status in the world. I had this teacher who really saw me and her Mm. name was Mrs. Jordan. And she was one of those sort of um, characters that either people loved her or people were intimidated by her or people hated her, but she saw me, you know, she was this chain smoking Shakespeare loving (laughs) battle ax and I loved her. And she saw me and she called me the bad penny to my face, you know, which I loved. I was like, fantastic. You can think I'm great and still call me the bad penny. That's great. And, um, and, you know, she saw me and she saw me in a way that my mother who was so scared going through the divorce and, and just really lost, you know, she was trying to control me. And Mrs. Jordan was like, be who you are. So I thought the most important thing that can happen to a kid is that they are seen. And so when I taught, it's like, I never cared whether they learned anything. I cared that they passed and that they developed good skills and would be able to go on to the next grade or whatever. But really what I wanted them to feel was seen. And that skill, which is something I just love to do, is what I do with my clients in the holistic branding. Because really what I'm doing is seeing past the image that they're used to portraying of themselves to what their heart is saying. A lot of people have a real struggle with even knowing what that is or being, I think the the most difficult copy to write is your own, like your website copy. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Because you, it's so hard to see yourself, even though you know. I know I'm building like six websites right now. And last week or maybe 10 days ago, I thought, oh shit, I better get my website going, right? Because it, it was right. like, I hadn't put in a speaking date in two years. I hadn't upgraded it. I hadn't even put the updated holistic branding. I'm like, oh shit. And, and so I actually ended up creating a secondary website with all of the sort of, you know, business stuff that I was doing. And just now I was, you know, waiting to talk to you. And I went on and I was like, oh God, I never even finished that page. I mean, you know, it's in there with some filler text, like, do you like to bake brownies? You know, it's like some filler text that's in there. I'm like, oh shit. And I'm, you know, everybody else, my clients, they're done on time, happy as a clam. But, you know, mine, it's like, oh. Yeah, but it's so hard. Even if you know yourself well and you're not afraid of being authentic and all of those things. Writing it about yourself is terrible. I don't, I think it's nearly impossible to see yourself like you're talking about. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, you know, I think, you know, we're all burdened with, with some false sense of self that we need to learn how to release. And I feel like there's two kinds, sort of two camps, you know, there's people who see themselves, you know, wearing the crown, you know, big, big egos. And that's a burden that you need to learn how to release. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, those of us who, you know, see ourselves, you know, with pushing the rock up the hill like Sisyphus constantly, yeah. you know, and, and that's a different form of ego that also has to get released. But, you know, either way, it stops you, whether you've got the inflated ego or the, you know, or the big rock of an ego you're trying to push uphill either way, you're not seeing yourself with your heart. How shocked are people when you really see them and then you show them what you see? Well, you know, it's fun. They're sort of like delighted. I did this video for a client for something and and she put it, she, she was so happy when I sent it to her and she said, I'm just crying. It makes me so happy. And you, you got me. That's my journey. I, you said, it's like perfect. And then the next morning she said, I'm so scared to put yeah. 
I think people are going to mock me and laugh at me. Like she was delighted that I saw her, but the idea of putting herself out there and having other people see her, so I, don't, I don't know what to do. And, like, oh. uh-huh. and sometimes it's really fun, you know, because I'll hear somebody get on the phone and they'll be flat, you know, and they'll be like, yeah. And then by the end, they're having so much fun because it's actually not about their ego. It's about their heart. And if somebody sees their heart, it's so fucking gratifying, you know? I mean, we grow up, we're taught every useless thing in the world. You know, unless we want to be on jeopardy, we're not going to need any of the facts we were taught because who the fuck cares when the Battle of Appomattox was, you know? It was in the Civil War, that's good enough. Bad war, divided the country, real big issue, slavery, class, race, okay, that's all good. That's it. You don't need to know what the date of the Battle of Appomattox was. But you have to know that to get from whatever, eighth grade to ninth grade, and you never have to know what is going on in your own heart. Never. Nobody asks you, no. what kind of an education system is that? It's, oh, it's shit. I mean, don't even get, we don't, it's the biggest shit. My, I have a daughter who's a senior this year and she has four classes and I'm like, oh my God, just finish your goddamn classes and graduate. Like, I don't care anymore. Just, just finish and graduate. Just check the damn boxes and move on. And she's like, when am I going to need to know X? I don't need to know where X is. And I'm like, you might need some algebra or geometry at some point in your life. I'm just saying I might, I, not the way they're teaching you, but, but she, she just went on this rant. Like, I don't even know who, who the fuck is X. I don't know who that is. I don't care where X is. And, right. and I'm like, I get it. Just get through that. Cause you are right. And I'm not going to blow smoke and tell her, no, it's really important that you do well and you try hard to get an A in finding X because, right. you know, yeah. No, you actually will use square footage. There are things that you're actually going to use. And I told her that there's a lot of math that you don't realize you're glad that you know until you use it later. Right. I totally hear you. It's bullshit. Just do it and pass. Yeah. And and it's sad. Well, if they taught differently, you know, I am the biggest nature lover in the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, biology was taught in such a way that I never got that biology was about nature. Now, my eighth grade Mm -hmm. biology teacher, Mrs. Winning, she was awesome. She literally, I was into birds, which I still am. She let Mm -hmm. me do a report on the birds around the little lake where I lived. I still have that report. That was me. But then you get a little older and all of a sudden you're in biology class and they're talking about all these things and you have no idea that they're really talking about plants or flowers or, you know, it just was like a total disconnect. Mm-hmm. I know. I tell my kids that there's actually a class you can take in college where you get to hike for six weeks in the summer around the nation. I'm like, do those classes. Right. <laughs> right? Like get credit for hiking the nation for six yes. weeks. Do yoga. Like just anything that sparks your interest because yeah, it's total shit. And you, you are spending time seeing people. And often, I mean that, I think that not just for kids, for every human being, that is one of the biggest things that we lack is really the ability to see people and be seen. And hear people and be heard. Yeah. Yeah. So and I that's all heart that. activity. It's not head activity. How difficult is that in the work that you do? Not necessarily for yourself, but for other people, because the head's a really great hamster wheel to get caught up and stuck on. And it's very familiar, even though you're going nowhere fast. How difficult is it for people to drop into the heart? Because you've mentioned this a couple of times. I think, you know, if I can keep them in joy. Mm. You know, for me, joy is a real conduit out of it because I'm a head person. You know, I mean, I used to be that person who you wanted on your, you know, I've been a lifeline on, you know, the $64,000 or whatever it was, the who wants to be a millionaire, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I was that person, you know, I was the person who knew the batting average of every Los Angeles Dodger and, you know, the definition of some obscure word. I mean, my head was very handy. And, uh, and so, you know, I still often come to things through studying and, and they have to trickle down into my heart. But joy is that conduit out of my head into my heart. Mm. And fortunately, there are things in my life that have, you know, sort of head interest. Like if I'm working with a client who's an artist or an art gallerist or something in the arts and, you know, so I'm an art historian by trade. I've, um, you know, owned art galleries. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had this whole career in the arts. So 
I like connecting all the parts and pieces, but you have to find the joy to connect the parts and pieces. And it, I think if, you know, when I sort of find out what, and maybe there would, wouldn't be joy necessarily, but it's that feeling. And if I can feel that from them, that point where we sort of go over here and then down here and then into the heart, if I can feel that from them, then all I need to do is begin to listen for what gets them there an idea, a color, you know, um, just sitting and painting. Um, it, it doesn't matter. It, so that's really, I, I, I really only work with creatives, writers, artists, nonprofits. Um, I think I'd probably have a harder time if I was working with corporate America. You know, I, I know that David White, the, the poet and philosopher has worked with corporations and I think he worked with Boeing for a long time. And I, and I thought, wow, I wonder what that was like yeah. to, you know, to work in a big corporate environment like that. And you're sort of helping them do exactly what you just described, get up out of their heads, you know? Yeah. It's hard. It's even if you know you're supposed to, and you want to, it's hard to make that shift and scary. Like, like the woman you said, who is like, I love this video, but oh my God, I don't know if I can put it online. Yeah. I've always thought it's my opinion that people are going to like you or not like you regardless. So you might as well be yourself because then at least the people who like you or don't like you genuinely do. Right. That's a wonderful attitude, you know, and I think it's fear that teaches us uh, or would have us believe that we need to try to be something we're not, you know? And, yeah. Uh, and that's, I've been really looking at that lately because, you know, I'm a nomad. I live on the road. I've lived on the road for four straight years. I literally, everything I own is in a 10 by 10 storage unit and that's where I live. But you know, we're under stay at home orders. So right, yes, we are. I had to find a home to stay at home in. And it just worked out so harmoniously and perfectly and beautifully. And I have a perfect place that's affordable. And, you know, fortunately I have the work because a lot of my work, speaking work is all gone right now. So yep. I have the, uh, you know, I have this holistic branding and work that I do for clients to keep me going. And so, um, and I have this sweet, quiet, place in some place that I had always wanted to learn a little more about. Of course, I'm learning about the, you know, four square miles that I walk every day. And exactly. Bit. But I've learned a lot about those four square miles and the people and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing because, um, you, you know, you're, oh, sorry about that. Um, uh, you know, you start now I've forgotten what we were talking about. But you've been a nomad for four years and you are, um, you had to stay tight because we're recording yeah, at the time. Yeah, it was of, something related to that. I can't mm, we'll get, I know, I don't know either, but we'll get back to it. I was <laughs> well, just on you know, the journey. What did you say before that about heads and hearts and... I just think it's really hard. Oh, she was afraid and we should, at least people will like us genuinely or not like us genuinely. Is oh yeah, right. So there you go. So I'm home. I'm off the road for like four months yeah. and I have not been in one place, let alone in one place. Like I haven't been in a store in four weeks or five weeks, you know, let alone like literally in one place, not moving mm -hmm. in forever because I live on the road. So here I am and I'm realizing that this part of me that's a hermit mm -hmm. is so happy being a hermit. And so I'm thinking, well, how do I, how do I find a way to honor that? I, I said it earlier that I have the skills to be front of house, but the heart to be back of house, you know, right. like I like being sort of behind the scenes, but I also have the skills to help people through my ability to communicate. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to own that for myself. I'm going to have to own that that's true for myself. And then that will show me what that means because I'm just not that person who wants to be, you know, when I do like, I've been doing these little book readings because as you said, my book just came out mm -hmm. and I put my dog in front of the camera, you know, I read and I show her because I'm just much happier or I show, or I make things with beautiful graphics. So yeah, it's an interesting thing, you know, and you have to own it or you won't get to know where you're supposed to go next. And that is the joy too, is owning who you are and where you fit in and what brings you joy. And yeah. Owning it. Yeah. I think that's tough for people too sometimes, but let's go back. Cause you said that your dad is Vincent Price, which I didn't know. Oh, I know. I didn't cyberstalk well enough, I guess. But tell me, let's go back in time. Talk about your life and your struggles and 
jump in. Um, so I, yeah, I grew up in a 9,000 square foot house in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, I, my parents were workaholics. They were gone a lot. Um, I had a map over my bed and my dad would send me a postcard of where they were and I would stand up and I'd move the little colored pin with the little flag that was my dad or my mom someplace else. And I think that's part of why I became a nomad, you know, kind of just thinking like, oh, um, I'm, I'm going to grow up and move, you know, I'm going to grow up and the world is going to be my playground, you know, but I'm definitely a mix between my mom and my dad. I have sort of the skill set that my dad had to communicate and inspire people. And then I have the sort of design behind the scenes mindset of my mom. Um, my dad was the loving one. My mother was the disciplinarian. And, mm. um, and it was a, you know, at the time I wanted the love and not the discipline, but the discipline is definitely what's kept me alive. Because you grew up in that environment with all these, this very warped sense of privilege. And my parents were strict, strict. But, um, you know, you grow up with all this stuff. And even though I had to earn my allowance and didn't get an allowance, if I didn't do what I was supposed to do, you mm -hmm. still, you know, you cannot grow up in that environment and not have a sense of entitlement and privilege. I can't imagine growing. I was grew up polar opposite. So I, I mean, I can't even wrap my head around what it was like to grow up in that environment. I love your push pins though. <laughs> oh yeah. It was my <laughs> idea. That, uh, that's very clever. Um, I love, yeah, I, I don't know that many people can relate exactly, but good for your parents for making you earn allowance and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. No, they that. were really strict. You know, if I wanted something, I was like, Oh, I want that 10 speak bike. They were like, well, let's go into the store and find out how much it is. Okay. It's whatever a 10 speak bike was. And then right. they're like, okay, now what are you going to do to earn it? Good for them. Oh um, yeah. I mean, very, very much so. But, um, but still there was this warped sense of like, well, how come I can't have the things that the other kids can have? And, you know, so, um, and how come you can buy what you want, but I can't buy what I want, you know? And, uh, <clears throat> but if you want me to do it with you, then you'll buy it for me. But so it was, it, it was illogical, their okay. attitude toward money. And that was a challenge to me. You know, my mother told me very early on, she didn't believe in inheritance and I wouldn't inherit a dime. Um, and, and, you know, I was nine or eight or <laughs> six or however old. And I'm like, what's inheritance? I think I must've been about eight. And she said, uh, it's what you get when people die. And I was like, who's dying? You know, like, that's what I wanted to know. So it, there were, there were a lot of different mixed messages and, um, this sense that you could do anything. And then also this real sense of, if you think you can do anything, then you might be a Beverly Hills brat who thinks she's entitled. Oh. So it was, it was hard to kind of, and when did you realize that? I think, you know, I realized it early on. I realized that um, my parents were different than the other parents, okay. um, that I was being raised very differently. My best friends growing up were Nat King Cole's youngest daughters, and their dad died when they were, I think, three. And their mother, Maria, um, was as strict as my mom. And my mom and Maria just loved each other, you know, because they were these very elegant women with very high standards for themselves and their children. And so um, the twins, you know, were still dear friends of mine, Casey and Timmy, you know, we would just thank God we had each other because we'd all look at each other and go like, how come our moms make us do this? And, you know, the other kids get to do this or do that. And, you know, but we, it's interesting. We, the three of us ended up going to very similar colleges, ended up doing a lot with our family legacy that gives back. And so um, I think we were raised, we look back and we think, thank God. At the time we were like, are you fucking kidding me? What's so unfair. <laughs> I mean, it is weird saying, you know, my best friends were Nat King Cole's youngest kids that's yeah, people yeah. Say, oh, what was it like growing up in Hollywood it must have been so it's like well you know it was like growing up in Detroit and your car your dad worked for one of the car companies you know yeah. people in Hollywood a lot of kids parents work in Hollywood right and so and it's I don't think kids pick that up first of all you don't know anything different and also your it's your parents job 
Right. They have a job and you live in this house and you know, I mean like why that doesn't mean anything to you until you realize what it means after you've grown up enough. Right. I love that your dad was the warm one. So take me through some of um, wherever your struggles really started. I know that there were um, incongruencies in your childhood, but it, that sounds like it was pretty okay. Yeah, I think, you know, what really happened for me was, you know, I, I'm trying to think, you know, now that I've written so many different things and seen mm-hmm some of the traps that I've fallen into, if I have to go deeper than the things that I've written about and really think like what fell through the cracks, I would say that any place that fear comes in is a place where we begin to get separated from our hearts and separated in the belief from the belief that there is this absolute powerful force that I think of as love that just is is everything, you know, it's why we're here, it's why we're on this planet, it's what we're here to do, it's the language of our hearts, and it's, you know, if we all lived, if if schools were taught knowing that, if businesses were run knowing that, the world, we wouldn't have gotten here where we're at right now, you know, with the world that is having to heal itself by, you know, giving us humans a time out, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think what, where I fell through the cracks was, I, every time I got scared about something and it felt like it made me doubt my own ability or deservability, I guess, that's really where things started to fall through the cracks. And a lot of times it was about money because I got such mixed messages around money. Mm -hmm. And it was also, I think, around talent, you know, because I kept getting picked to do things, but my parents really didn't want me to get a big head. So I never got this idea that I was like, they really wanted me to do the things that other people thought I was good at. Um, Like, you know, I, I got cast in every play all the way through, you know, everything. And then I got into a very exclusive bunch of very exclusive grad schools in acting. And my dad was like, why do you want to act? You're a wonderful writer. You should be a writer. And I think, you know, he just didn't want anyone to have that lifestyle and maybe knew in so, on some level that, because he knows, he knew what it took. He had a 65 year career and he knew yeah. I didn't have that, you know, that I would want to do that more than anything in the world. And, and he was right. But, but you, and I realized that very quickly, but you want to hear sort of unconditional love coming through in in terms of it's a fine line right you know i mean i remember when america's got talent those they would put these kids on there who everybody in their family had told them they could sing and they were you know, tone deaf it was painful and the judges were laughing at them behind their backs it was just horrible and inevitably one of the kids would say but my grandmother said i have the most beautiful voice in the world you know and that's what my parents didn't want to do they didn't want to delude me but right. some of the messages came out sort of backwards i think because they didn't come from love. They came from fear, fear that they might raise an entitled child or a bratty child or something like that. And I think when the messages come through from fear or triggered by their own fears of money, my dad grew up wealthy and <clears throat> there was all this family history, generations and generations of people who were self-made men and their history around money. So that came through. And I think that's really where, um, where I fell through the cracks, you know, where sort of what I wanted to do and how I would earn my living doing it. Like, you know, the things that people wanted to pay me for, I didn't want to do. And the things that I wanted to do, people didn't want to pay me for. That's such a conundrum, isn't it? I remember I, I was really young. Yeah. I graduated, I was in college in 1988 and I remember wanting to do like journalism and communications. And back then you had to type and print your stuff and mail it to everyone. And, and it was, I, it was just so difficult to break into that. I thought this isn't worth going into. And I didn't, I stopped going to college and little did we know the world would be digital at some point, but I mean, it was really it seemed wrought with pitfalls. So you don't follow your heart because, oh, I love it, but how am I going to make money at that? And I'll have college. Like we all are on that same sort of, I think 
everybody gets a, how do I turn what I absolutely love to do into also an income? Well, this sort of relates to my book. You know, one of the, I, I love it less now because I sort of see the man behind the curtain. But when I was growing up, because I grew up in Hollywood, and I think every kid has to be a fan of something. I was a fan of sports. And my dad mm. and mom loved baseball and they loved certain sports. So it was something we shared as a family. And I grew up being a fan of sports. And as I said, I had that crackerjack mind. Like, you know, I knew every birthday, every hometown, every height and weight of every Los Angeles Dodger in the 1978 team. You know, I just had that mind. And I had been trained to be somebody who was good at, at you know, sort of putting yourself out there. Um, I wish that I had tried to be a sports journalist <sighs> because I loved sports so much then, you know, there's still aspects of sports that I really love now just less because it's so commercial and, and money driven. But I loved sports so much then. And had I tried to do that, the message I would have given myself was, it's okay to do what you love. But I think, you know, I went to these really fancy schools and, you know, I, I studied all these pretentious and fancy things. And I think I thought, you know, how can you think it would be okay to be a sportscaster, you know, or a sports journalist? That seems ridiculous. And the funny thing is that my college, two of the, you know, sort of more successful graduates were the owner of the New York Yankees and the head of Major oh. League Baseball. So it's not like that wasn't there, but there was something right. tied in the, in my family that meant being in the arts. And the funny thing is both my parents loved sports. And at one time, one of my perks for one of my jobs was that I got season tickets to, or really, really good seats to the Laker, Los Angeles Lakers at the height of their fame. And when my mother would come into town, I'd take, she'd be like, could you get us the tickets? And we'd go to the games and we'd have so much fun together. I think they would have been delighted. They loved sports. They would have yeah. known it was something I love. I was that kid who read the sports page from the moment I could read. And so the message I gave to myself by not even considering that, I mean, I didn't even think to do that. Like it wasn't even on my radar. Right. And by not doing that, I think the message I gave to myself was there's this very complex quadratic equation that tells you who the fuck you're supposed to be and what the fuck you're supposed to do. And if you get it all the parts right, then you'll make money. And you'll be happy, but it's really hard. Yeah. And, you know, in my 20s, it would have been great to just make any money. And I'm sure I could have made any money in some way as a sports journalist, you know, at least as much as I made doing the crap that I did. I so, think, again, it's backwards, right? Right. And we don't even, you said you didn't even consider it. Like, how in the world did you know? <laughs> I know. Exactly. Exactly. How in the world did I not, did that not even pop to my mind? Right. You know, and then by my 30s, I had friends who were sports journalists, many of them, you know, and I was like, how'd you get that job? You know, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, many of them did as they were, all th three were women and they got them, two got them because they were really, really world-class athletes and the other because her dad was a sports journalist. Nonetheless, I could have fucking tried. Right. Yeah, we, I know I... We all, I think most of us have issues somehow with money stemming from something. And sometimes we can't even make it tangible, but you're right. I mean, well, how much money was I trying to make in 1988? Right. <laughs> it's the stupidest, but we have this idea of, of following the steps or fitting in or doing the right thing. Right. Now, one of the themes in your life was that there was something that needed to be fixed and you, you gained and lost things a lot of times. So Dive into that a little bit for me. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I think it's the, you know, as you're saying, and I think it's the parallel between being given the gifts to, um, you know, evoke responses and inspire people, and yet, you know, being a, a hider and a hermit. Uh, if I look from that perspective, you know, I've always been able to make money, um, and I've never been able to keep it. And I think the never being able to keep it is feeling like I was told at a very early age that I didn't deserve it. If you're told when you're eight that you don't deserve an inheritance, if you know every other kid, if you grew up in privilege and you know every other kid you know is getting an inheritance, no matter what explanation they give you, it doesn't feel right. Because you're going like, oh, okay, well, that's great that you don't believe in inheritance, but 
every other kid, you know, I mean, I didn't mind that I didn't get the car, or didn't get the this or didn't get the that that the other kids got and that I always had to earn it. But there was something about inheritance that just what it felt like they were saying was my idea of what is important is more important than taking care of you. And um, and that sort of dovetailed as I think about it with sort of their lives, like our idea of what is important while we go out into the world and we do this is really more important than taking care of you. Because a lot of the people I was left with were like, I didn't like them. And you know, when I was six, this wonderful woman came and, and she's still one of my dearest friends. And she was my nanny for maybe 18 months, 12 to 18 months, I can't remember, but she was 19, had fled the Czech Republic, had had to go through all of these things to be able to get at a night as a 19 year old to California, completely lied that she spoke English. I think she had like four words. And she became my nanny and I taught her English and she taught me joy and life and love you know she was the first nanny I had that was like I just adored her in every picture I'm just leaning against mm. her and I still stay with her when I go to LA I just I love her and um you know I, I think that there was this disconnect and I, I'm sure because she'll say it even now like she'll joke she'll say oh my god the things that your mother said I had to cook for you it was like a lamb chop that was like a hockey puck and she's an amazing cook and like vegetables boiled within an inch of their lives like she was looking at this list you know and kind of in her mind going like okay you know and so I'm sure that with conveyed came through like I felt like Daniela was on my side uh -huh. Like she was supposed to care for me, but she was on my side, not my parents' side, you know? Right. And, and I think that was this like real disconnect for me of feeling like um, the lack of deservability, this sense of, I, I don't know whether I'm allowed to be me and have that be okay and be supported and nurtured for being me, or if there's some external idea of who I'm supposed to be that really is what I'm supposed to focus on. And I think that's what happened. You know, I, I've always been able to earn money, but I don't think I've, I've ever kept it because I never really felt it was truly mine. And, and I think then I made a lot of wrong choices with it because it, it never felt like it had come in. It felt like it was just supposed to wash through. And so, you know, I'm, you know, closing in on 60 and I'm really just learning that, you know, learning like, oh, you, you still have healing to do around that. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, for me, that triggers um, being worthy. Oh, totally. I mean, like you say that and I'm like, like you weren't worthy. Like, what were they, what was she saying? I don't understand. That's a, because, you know, as a kid, your parents are everything to you and you want to be something to them and to feel like you're not worthy or deserving of whatever they're giving you is so traumatic. Right. Well, and I think again with a kid of privilege it's a really fine line yeah because yeah. i would rather be working on what i'm working on now than working on what some of the other kids who grew up in my circle are working on which i think is a whole other level of lack of worth yeah. you know it's it's a i'm very consciously trying to use what I've learned to give back. And I think there are some kids that I grew up with that there's a much bigger disconnect. Yeah. And, and it's really not their fault. They were just given everything and, and almost sort of with no there, there, you know, there was no there, there. And so I really feel like I'm, I'm grateful for it. Okay. I'm grateful for it, but uh, it took me a while. It took me a while to, you know, sort of not feel like I was constantly trying to live up to some standards that my mom had for me or blaming my mother, my poor mother. I blamed her for everything for years. You know, it's like, Oh, it's rainy. Oh yeah. It's my mother's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, not quite that bad, but... rain now. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, she was dead and she was still making it rain. I mean, that's not quite true. But, you know, I mean, there was just so much that, you know, I felt like my mom, my mom, my mom. And now I just have nothing but love and gratitude for her. But, you know, there's still always work we have to do. And I think you're probably right. You know, the next, the next step for me is actually going to be owning these parts of me that seem to not fit together and trust that it's a jigsaw puzzle and at the end all the pieces are going to fit yeah and, and that there aren't going to be two missing like there are right now for yeah. my jigsaw puzzle brand new jigsaw puzzle two missing how they can't do that to you that is just wrong wrong so you've you money jobs homes relationships your heart soul sense of self-worth is what you wrote to me like you've lost them and gained them a lot of times there was a point for you where there was a shift though and that's when you started creating a daily practice of joy. Can, so why did you decide to do that? What was the catalyst behind that? And how did that make so many changes? Well, after one of the times when my life fell apart and I, it came back together again, and I felt like I was doing everything right, I had this epiphany one day and I realized that although I was doing everything right, I was miserable. Mm. And that if I had to keep living like that, doing everything right, I didn't want to live another 40 years. And I wasn't going to make it like that. And that happened to be the year that my dad would have turned 100. So there were these celebrations all over the world that somebody cleverly called the Vincentennial. Wow. And so, yeah, so I went all over and I talked about my dad. And, um, you know, I am not a horror movie fan. I never liked being scared. But I felt like what the horror fans, you know, they all knew more than I did about the movies, but they wanted to know about my dad. Yeah. So I decided I would talk to them and share with them who he was and how he lived by sort of embodying it. And for a whole year, I did that. And I worked and did all the rest of my jobs too. But I was so happy that year. And I was happy, even though there were difficult things happening in my life, because I felt like me. And when I really tried to sort of say what that was or, or what made me feel like me, it was that I felt joy. And I realized like joy was the kicker. Joy got me out of my head, out of the work, into my heart. So I came out of that year, like I know what it is I need to do to change my life. And it took another like almost two and a half years to really get to, you know, stop talking about joy and start practicing joy. And really it took hearing in my own ear, you need to start a daily practice of joy. And I was like, oh, what would that look like? You know, and so I really had to kind of think about it. And joy to me, this is a definition I love, is the pure and simple delight in being alive. And that is how joy feels. Like it's just all the head shit goes away and you just feel this joy in being alive. And so I began to practice that. And I had to do what I did as a kid because that was the only way I knew to practice it. You know, I had to stop and smell the flowers and um, jump in puddles and watch I Love Lucy episodes and play with my dog and look at birds and, you know, just do things that were simple. And what I realized was that my whole life I'd seen myself and all of life as a problem that had to be solved. But in those 20 minutes of practicing joy, and then I always blogged about it, in that period of time, I was living as if I was the person I was wanting to become. I was living as if I was the joy-filled person that I believed myself to be and wanted to get back to. And so then I had an automatic head bypass. I was in my heart. And so I thought, well, then I'm going to keep doing that. And opportunities kept arising for me to create these, what I came to call heart-centered practices, because you know, when I became intentionally home free, as I call it, and lived on the road, there were just so many things I didn't know. I had to embrace a whole practice of not knowing. Um, you know, in various areas of my life, these practices started to evolve. Wonderful practice that came from Ram Das called witnessing, which I, which was really about learning to love myself by witnessing every thought I had without judgment. And when I witnessed the thoughts that I had without judgment, then all of a sudden the juju of those thoughts changed. And I could see certain thought patterns and go, oh, oh, that's why that's happening. And then actually choose to replace them. Like, well, okay, if I'm not going to judge them, then do I really want to, Ella, you're such mm -hmm. an asshole for thinking that. Or, oh my God, what a 
what a jerk you are or what a jerk they are mm -hmm. and what an asshole. Oh my God. You know, if you just kind of go, wow, I'm witnessing that I'm really triggered by that person. And then it's much easier to kind of go worth it, worth holding on to. No. Maybe not, you no. know? Right. And so these practices really began to shift me and I would find you know, one of my, my real, uh, sort of hair shirts that I had to wear all the time. I'm a, and my brain works quickly. And so if I call customer service, like I want them to be as quick as I am, <laughs> right? You know? Right. Yep. And so I'd be like, oh my God, such an asshole on customer service. But when I started witnessing, I would look at that like, wow, you're really an asshole. But if I didn't right. judge myself for being an asshole, I was just observing like, you're being an asshole. And then I had to say, why are you being an asshole? Well, because right. I'm impatient. And if I wasn't going to judge myself for being impatient, I would say, why are you being impatient? Well, because I'm a workaholic and I think that I have so much work to do. And if I don't finish this right now, then what's going to happen? And it's like, so why are you working? And it gets you to this yeah. place of unpacking where all of a sudden you realize that it is just not worth holding on to a lot of the things that you've thought were really essential to you. So all of these heart practices, like, they changed me. They just changed me. And, uh, you know, I think I'm a nicer person. And so, you know, the thing you've helped me see today, which I'm really happy about is now I need to be continue to witness and be nicer to the things I haven't yet accepted about myself. Mm. You know, I have to do the, you know, late fifties, early sixties version of letting myself become a sportscaster yeah sports journalist whatever that is you know exactly and i think in in investigating those we let some of those go too but then they're okay then they're, yeah it's like, right exactly it's not it's i mean peaceful. i would never be a sports caster now but what's the equivalent of that feeling right what right. is the thing that i absolutely love you know what do, what do i would love more than anything well then do that you know and if at first it doesn't pay your bills pay your bills another way but do that I want to ask you about your minimalism journey because I'm a minimalist. And so mm -hmm. I find that personally curious, but also I started because I wanted less stress and the house was just, it was stressful. There's too much stuff and I was cleaning all the time and it was just stressful, but it had such massive side effects, you know, over the last five years where this is the first year we want to renovate an RV and live in it full time. Wow. Yeah. And so you have lived nomadically what does that look like and mean and how did that help you embrace joy oh so much well you know i grew up in a nine thousand square foot house mm -hmm. i grew up with a mother who when she died had i think 15 storage units and three houses oh my gosh um, and my dad had so much art that he could lend 90 pieces to an exhibit and you would have no clue that anything was out of the house you know and um so they were accumulators and i right i was in a business of getting people to spend a lot of money on big houses because that's how i made my living and so you know when this came up that i it was really clear this is what i was needing to do i had been reading while well, listening on audiobook while i drove to a um, Marie Kondo's The Magic Art of Tidying Up. And she says, you know, hold everything and see if it sparks joy. And since it was joy, I thought, oh, well, okay, fuck it, I'll try. Right. And I, thought, well, right? and I thought, oh, well, you know, this I know is going to spark joy. And I'd pick this thing up and I'd be like, no, no, nothing. No, no joy. And then, you know, and so the art, almost all the art sparked joy, but almost everything else didn't. Like I kept this one chair, it's a beautiful chair. But the reason I kept it was not because it was a beautiful chair, but because it was my Dalmatian's favorite chair. Oh. And we had this whole thing where, you know, I never got to sit in that chair because he appropriated it and made it his $4,000 dog bed mm -hmm. to the point where I finally just covered it in fleece. And it was literally his dog bed. Like that was the only place he wanted to be. And he had died. And I thought, well, there's no way I'm getting rid of that. That's Jack's chair. You know, it's like, it wasn't that I wanted to own that chair it was that I couldn't bear to not have Jack's chair you know right and so um those are the few things that I kept and uh, I was kind of shocked by that and yeah. then what was really interesting because my mother was such an accumulator and it was all about appearance and stuff and stuff and did I say stuff like yeah stuff. Uh, maybe about 
four months after that, maybe less three, I had rented this really funky place up in the Hudson River Valley and it had a yoga studio, which became sort of my office and living space, a sleeping hut, which you walked outside to and it was room enough for, I think there might've been some drawers in there and a bed. And then you walked outside of that and went to another place and there was the bathroom. So it was like outdoor living with indoor spaces. And I spent a lot of time outside hiking, hiking, walking, walking, walking. And one day I was walking, I remember exactly where I was and on this rail trail. And I was like, oh my God, something's missing. And I realized the ghost of my mother making her my whipping boy for everything was gone. And I'd been really working on letting her go. A friend of mine had said, you know, your mother let you go. Why don't you let her go? And I knew she was right, but I couldn't do it. And I couldn't do it. And I couldn't do it. There was something about letting go of all of that stuff mm. that was the final practice. It was the practice of release. And I released all the things that I almost felt obliged to hold on to for her. And that kept me sort of obligated to her yeah. in a way. And so, yeah, I mean, literally everything I own fits in a 10 by 10 storage unit and there's room in there. Every year I get rid of more. Um, you know, some of it's boxes, some of it's little bits of family memorabilia, like literally, you know, there is now room to move around in the, and it does not pile to the ceiling. Uh, you know, there are a few things that I really love that I kept and my best friend has all of those either in her office or her house. So if I stay with her, you know, I see these few things that I love, including Jack's chair is in her office, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I live well, I, I would say I live simply except for shoes. <laughs> we all have shoes advice, are a problem, you know, and really honestly, like how stupid is that? Because I have a car with, a, I have a small Subaru and a roof box. That's it. It's not an RV. It's not a anything. And it's like shoes. Why couldn't I pick t-shirts or bandanas? They don't take up room. Shoes take up room. Oh. The worst would be books and I sell books. So I actually am schlepping books and shoes around <laughs> and then shoes and, and chocolate. I have okay. Um, All right. That's simple. not that comes and goes though. That's on a revolving door. So that was <laughs> right. It's so interesting when you go through that process how much you release and to really realize what has value to you. Yes. And why it has value to yes. you. And um, yeah, we've loved that. So my husband is shoes. He now has more shoes than I do. But for me, it's graphic t-shirts. And Marie Kondo, man, she taught me how to roll those things up. I can have 50 and they take up no space at all. Wow, yeah, so, graphic t-shirts, me too. Yeah, yeah. You it, you realize how quirky you are right. when you downsize and you're like, oh, all this other stuff wasn't actually me at all. But right. now, that of yes. all the yeah, it's really fun. I just wondered, I'm glad that I asked because I had a feeling there was some sort of release of something, but I didn't know what it was. Because My mom. Everyone who goes through that minimalism process, it doesn't matter why you start it. Like, okay, now you and I have a smaller footprint. That's great. It's not why I did it. Right. right. I mean, there's all these, but it costs less money. That's great. That's not why I did it. There's all these added benefits that you didn't expect. But the biggest one was that there was some sort of stress that was released in the process. Yep. How beautiful. Mm -hmm. How great. And now, and, and you learning really what was important with a skewed upbringing with money and earning things and stuff like that. Yeah. People know how to find you. Tell me who you love to hear from and work with. You said creatives. Yep. Creatives and nonprofits, people who are giving back, people who, you know, have maybe some of the same issues as I have. Like, I know this is what I'm called to do, but am I crazy? You know, that's really <laughs> fun for me because then I can let them be the sports journalist. You know, like yeah. I can give them the permission that I couldn't give myself in my 20s. Absolutely. You can do this and mean it with my whole heart. And what's really fun is I often see that when they start working with me, the money starts to flow, which is an affirmation for me of the energetic around it. Yeah. You know, money is not money. There's no gold in Fort Knox. We're all playing with monopoly money there there is you know every country is trillions and trillions of dollars of debt this is all an illusion mm -hmm. completely there is more than enough to supply all of us so all this shit we have around money is just as made up as the money is you yeah. know 
And so what I find is that when they step into it, all of a sudden this money will start to flow. And I'm like, yeah, it's an energetic. Money is an exchange of value. And if you value what you're doing and are excited about it, other people want that. They don't care what it looks like. It can look like chocolate chip cookies. It can look like bamboo shoes. It can look like art. It can look like anything. It can look like ideas. If you value it, people want it. That's what social media has told us. You know, I, my best friend and I have, um, we decided to start an Instagram page together because she loves like cute pictures. They make her happy. Way too many cats for my taste, but anyway, yeah. a lot of cute pictures. And I love beautiful pictures and we're always sort of sharing things. So we decided to pick a word a day and um, she sends hers and I have mine and we post them together. So, and it, we've call, called it duologue because it's like a duologue between the two of us. So her picture, which is always like a ridiculously cloying, as far as I'm concerned, cat picture or something, mm -hmm. then the word, and then my picture, which I think is always very tasteful and fabulous. Well, honestly, without exception, her pictures get like way more likes than mine. And they're like some ridiculous thing of like a, a little baby piglet on a pink blanket. That thing got 300 and, you know, whatever likes. It's like, and, and I think, but I'm learning that lesson because I'm picking this arty thing from my head, you know, and the piglet gets likes. And it's because people want to have the permission to just go, I love that. I love that piglet. I love that piglet. And I just get to click like. And the only time I ever mind is I've, I put my own dog up there and she doesn't get as many likes. Oh, that's like, ridiculous. Damn it. That's, that's <laughs> no, not, no. that's not okay. But, it, but what that taught me is that the good part about social media is it gives us permission to be what's in my heart. If I'd had an Instagram account when I was 15 years old, it would have been like, you know, Simon and Garfunkel songs and the Dodgers and, you know, it would have been so much fun. And maybe yeah. I would have seen it reflected back at me and gone, this is cool. This is who I am. Right. Or maybe I would have been totally pretentious and tried to make it perfect. Yeah, I that's, I mean, it's a problem, but you've gone through this journey now. And so now I love how you're helping other people. Victoria, thank you so much for being on. This was so, this was so fun. Much fun. <laughs> I really appreciate you. Likewise, right back at you. And you